opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the content creators and should not be assumed to reflect product endorsements or the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Now I'd like to direct our attention to Vanda Pharmaceuticals. We have Maggie Felton to present on behalf of Vanda Pharmaceuticals. They are an exhibitor and a sponsor, and we really appreciate their support. Now, Maggie has quite a, a list of credentials beside her, behind her name, but I'm just going to mention one that highlights um, what she's here to do, and that is she is a nurse, pardon me, a clinical nurse educator. Maggie, are you ready? I am. Can you hear me well? Perfectly. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Tom. Um, as Tom said, my name is Maggie Felton. I am a nurse educator. I work for Vanda Pharmaceuticals, and I am part of the patient outreach program where I go out to the community and I educate on various um, diseases or conditions. And when it comes to um, Vanda, Really, we're talking about non-24 circadian rhythm disorder. Um, I'm sure many here have heard of non-24. Um, I'm hoping um, as I go through some of this information, some of it is perhaps new. Uh, maybe you learned something today that you haven't learned um, in the past. Uh, and of course, I will uh, open um, with um, opportunity for questions, uh, comments. Uh, I appreciate those very much. And I also would like to take some time in just a few minutes just to go over some uh, common uh, Q&A pertaining to non-24 um, that I often uh encounter out in the community. So a little bit about myself. I am a nurse. I've been a nurse for a very, very long time. I I started out as a bedside nurse. I worked in the ICUs and and ORs and and NICUs and so forth. And I eventually transitioned as a a nurse educator role. Went on and obtained my nurse practitioner license. And so now I'm able to work with Vanda and reach out um, to the community. So my role really is for those of you who have met me. Um, and those of you who I've spoken with in the past, you know that uh, my role is really to go out in the community and meet different groups and organizations and hopefully uh, be able to have these discussions about sleep, sleep disorders, non-24, one-on-one in person, um, and really um, able to provide resources. Also, I wanted to let you guys know, if you hear a little bit of an accent coming from me, it is Polish. I was born and raised in Poland. I moved here when I was 14 years old. And so every now and then it comes out. I can't control it. It does what it does. And especially when I spend time with my parents um, where we speak Polish at home, it seems to be a little bit stronger. So I want to save you some time trying to figure out where I'm from. Um, just to let you know, I am uh, born and raised uh, in Poland. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and jump in um, to non-24. And, you know, I'm curious um, I'm curious to know how many of you out there um, actually have not heard of non-24. I know people always say, you know, they're either 
seen, heard the commercials, um, or perhaps uh, been part of an education session, have heard a presentation on a previous uh, convention or some other means. So I'm always curious to know if there are any newbies per se, if there are someone out there that has not heard of Nan24. And if you are that person, if I could just hear a shout out um, for a second. And if um, and if not, that's okay too. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and just go ahead and jump in. So we talk about non-24 um, sleep disorder, and it's been such a big topic, especially this year, um, just because sleep has been an issue uh, or concern or something that's affected pretty much all of us um, in the world that we live in today with COVID and everything else that's happening. And so often we question, you know, you know, I'm having trouble sleeping. What could, what is the cause? And that's often the, the most common questions I get. What is it? What's causing it? And sleep is such an integral part of our uh, health, you know, our healthy living that finding the root and cause, it's really important. And so we often kind of try to look into, you know, what are the possible root and causes? You know, is it stress? Is it anxiety? Um, is it something that you're dealing with? Is it maybe some new medicine that somebody's been put on? Um, is it your job? Um, your, you know, is it exposure to too much electronics in the evening hours? Maybe poor sleeping habits. You know, there's so, so many um, causes of sleep. And we talk about non-24 in particular um, here is because non-24, it's circadian rhythm disorder, but it's really, we consider it sleep disorder. And it's so prevalent in the um, blind community. And simply because it's so heavily influenced by light. Sleep is a concern for anyone out there. Um, but here in the blind community, we are concerned about it because of individuals who do not have light perception. So it is heavily influenced by light and it is uh, strongly influenced in those individuals who are totally blind. But I also want to um, throw it out there that um, those individuals who uh, have low vision or even sighted individuals can have this disorder. So it's not uh, only in those who are totally, totally blind. So now 24, um, it has many names. Uh, we just refer to it simply as non 24, but it is a serious chronic condition. So what I mean is, it's not like the flu where it comes and goes. Um, it is not like the COVID where it comes and goes. Um, it is something truly that if you have it, you're affected by it for life. Uh, chances are you will have to deal with it for life, whether it's treated or some other means. Um, so it's, it's not seasonal. And it is very um, common in those who are totally blind. In fact, up to 70% of those who do not have light perception uh, may have this disorder, uh, but not all individuals who are totally blind have this disorder. And there are some very classic symptoms that many people are familiar with. The first one, it is the nighttime sleep impairment. And what I mean is um, when we talk about nighttime sleep impairment, those individuals 
who have non-24 will tell you that not only they have a hard time going to sleep, they have a hard time staying asleep. They may be able to sleep a few hours of that. And in fact, they'll tell you when they go to bed at nighttime and they lay down, they tuck themselves in um, and they try to go to bed. It's just very difficult. Their mind wanders. The eyes will not stay shut. They open up. The mind is very active. Uh, despite all the good uh, sleep hygiene they employ, um, they, they are not successful in trying to get themselves to bed. And what happens is they eventually give up. And they get up and they do all sorts of things at nighttime, um, you know, vacuuming, you know, emptying out the dishwasher, maybe doing, doing laundry, um, you know, maybe paying bills. You're just, you're very, your mind is very, very active. And so it's very, very difficult to get settled and go to bed. And in the same token, those individuals will tell you they have a very hard time staying awake during the day. And it's not just from, you know, being sleepy from that, um, not sleeping at nighttime, but it's really having such a difficult time that it affects their activities or affects their um, quality of life during the day where they have a hard time uh, keeping up with schedules, whether it's work or school and so on. And the last very important part of non-24 when it comes to symptoms is that it has this unique cyclical pattern. I'm sure many of you have heard of it, this classic drift. Um, if you have never heard of it, most people explain it, that it feels like it's a roller coaster. It feels like it comes and goes. The sleep feels like it comes and goes. It feels like it's all over the, all over the place. It's really difficult to try to figure out if there is some kind of pattern. There is. But if you're not looking for it, it's very difficult to recognize it. They, people will have a um, few good nights of sleep, um, for, but the rest of them are just all over the place. They're sleeping, you know, um, 9 a.m., 3 in the afternoon, uh, maybe 6 p.m. It just, it's all over the place. And I mentioned that because it's very different from other sleep disorders like, you know, insomnia or narcolepsy or sleep apnea. All those um, have a little bit different sleeping pattern, uh, more predictive. And often we're able to find clues. We're able to cue in and find out what are the causes, you know, whether it is new medication or anxiety, insomnia, something's happening, or perhaps you're snoring, you know, your partner's snoring, um, you know, you think they may have sleep apnea, and that's another cause of um, not sleeping. Maybe some mental health disorder uh, that are happening at the same time, things that worry you, that are happening and causing you. But all those very often are transient. They're, they're, they're not always there. They come and go, and we can often often kind of look back and and see the clues. So I always say for anyone out there who has trouble sleeping, um, go and see your uh, your primary care provider, someone who you know, you love and trust, someone that knows you, that, the, that person would be the best person to look into your history and physical and determine uh, what would be uh, the best cause of action in terms of trying to figure out uh, what are the causes of your sleep, whether it's not 24 or something else. And I always tell everyone, um, 
you know, if, if anything, start a diary, sleep diary um, to help trying to figure out what are some of the clues. Nothing fancy, just write down on a piece of paper when you're tired, when you're awake, uh, when you're sleeping, how long are you sleeping, uh, just for a couple of weeks. And this is very helpful. It's a very helpful tool for your provider to look into what are the possible causes of um, lack of sleep. Um, and I wanted to also kind of touch on real quickly on um, sleep hygiene. So when we talk about sleep hygiene, um, very, very important when it comes to sleep, regardless of the cause. Uh, sleep hygiene is just, you know, another fancy word for us to describe what are some of the things that we do to help us go to sleep. You know, people always, you know, ask, you know, if, if I have good sleep hygiene, would it help me with sleep? Will it help me with non-24? And when they say sleep hygiene, we talk about things like, you know, going to bed around the same time every night, um, you know, waking up around the same time, maybe using clock alarm, maybe using um, nightshades, um, maybe using a sound machine to, to tune out the noise or maybe having no noise at all. Uh, maybe some people like to take a bath right before bedtime to let them know to get ready uh, for bed. So sleep hygiene is very personalized. Uh, it's very personal. What works for you um, uh, may not work for somebody else. So sleep hygiene is a very personal, individualized um, uh, process uh, that you would do to help you go to sleep every single night. And so... Um, it would be wrong for me not to uh, address really quickly here, you know, um, in terms of sleep, you know, what controls the sleep? How do we know when to sleep? How does our bodies know when to sleep? And how does that work with non-24? How, how does that work all together? Well, um, in a nutshell, our bodies um, have this thing called uh, master body clock. It tells our bodies what to do during a daytime and nighttime. And that doesn't mean that does not uh, involve just sleep. Uh, this master body clock really uh, tells us bodies to do everything um, from, you know, um, keeping our bodies cooler at nighttime. Um, you know, we make cholesterol at nighttime. You know, we're typically hungry during the daytime. You know, this master body clock controls our mood, how we feel, our blood pressure. And it's not just people, but, you know, animals, plants, everything in the world is controlled by master body clock. And so um, this clock um, also controls our sleep naturally. And so the main mechanism there is our eyes. Our eyes are the main control when it comes to uh, the body knowing when it's daytime, when it's nighttime. And so our eyes have these specialized cells. These cells are designed to detect light every single morning. And they tell our bodies, you know, it's daytime versus nighttime. Um, and so this is very important because our bodies are designed to do certain things during nighttime and daytime. And so during the daytime, when our bodies are recognized, um, it's daytime, it releases um, certain hormones like cortisol. I know many of you are heard of cortisol. It's just the, the hormone that makes us active, alert, awake. We make so much of it first thing in the morning. And so it's designed to get us going, uh, get us active. And so it only makes sense that we make cortisol um, during the daytime, most of it in the morning, and then less and less and less as the day progresses. 
And so when it's nighttime, our body is able to detect it's nighttime. And so it releases in turn melatonin. And you guys know melatonin is the hormone that helps us fall asleep. That is designed to help us get settled in bed and sleep. And so our body uses uh, these cues from the environment to let us know when to sleep, when to stay awake. And so with someone who has non-24, our bodies are not able to detect daytime or nighttime. And as a result, uh, it runs on its own clock, which is different for all of us. Um, and this clock is sort of confused. And as a result, it releases these hormones on an inappropriate time. So you can imagine for someone who's going to sleep at nighttime, tucking themselves in at 10 p.m. and we make so much cortisol, it is very, very difficult to go to sleep when your body wants to be active and vice versa with melatonin during the day. And so, um, and this is essentially in, in, in the short version, how our bodies know when to sleep, uh, when to stay awake. And so this, this clock, master body clock, um, is the main mechanism. And so I know we're, um, I didn't want to take up a whole lot of the time just describing this because I know many of you might have heard this presentation before. So I want to kind of stop here and open that up and see if anyone had any questions or comments, um, um, about any of this information. So I do see a hand up. Todd, go ahead and ask her a question and you might have to unmute yourself. Uh, Megan. Is that your right name, Megan? Yeah. Yes. Yes, sir. Oh, okay. I just want to make sure I get it right. Uh, thank you for the presentation so far. And I never knew about melatonin until you said something. But now that I know that I've got non-24, okay, to come very brief, I first heard about non-24 during the conventions of last year. And I didn't take it too seriously until this year. Well, now that I've taken it seriously, and now that I know for a fact that I've got it, how do I tell other people about it? I mean, I, I know I've got it. Like, let's say I'm going on an overnight camping trip. How do I tell somebody that I've got this condition and what do I tell them exactly? Sure, absolutely. So is your question um, more like in terms of would you like to educate others about non-24 and share this? Or do you want to let them know, hey, I have non-24 and therefore I may be on a different sleep schedule? Mm. I, I think it's a combination of both because because like people have not, I mean, if I go on a camping trip with somebody in the future, mm -hmm. um, they might not have heard of non-24. And so I might want to have to tell them. So it's a combination of, of both wanting to educate and let them know. So I mean, I, mm -hmm. you know, I'm just sort of wondering how would I go about that? Absolutely. So number one, um, Todd, um, I want to tell you that we do have resources available, um, and anyone here, by the way, um, it, we do have these audiobooks that can help you summarize what non twenty four is. Um, and so, if you're out there and you you know want to share it with others, it's a great tool to have um, to kind of summarize what non twenty four is. Um, what I typically, you know, what I would suggest for you to do. To share about non-24, it just simply say, I have a condition that um, does not allow my body to sleep during normal scheduled time, normal schedule. So you may find me sleeping at various times and so forth. And so um, 
in terms of describing, you know, how does it work? How does the master body clock work to get yourself educated? We have tons of resources. I will leave my information at the end and feel free to reach out to me and I'll be more than happy mail them I've to gotten you. already assured that, that, education, <laughs> that, that education is us about it. So I know how to, I, I know about it and all that stuff. It's just that what I'm more concerned about is saying other people. You know, I would basically share with others, you know, if there is a schedule um, that they want you to be on, you know, for example, if you are camping, you know, if there's trips that are happening, you know, you want to go ahead and give them ahead of time, let them know, I may not be able to um, abide by the schedule. Um, I do have a sleep disorder, which... Um, allows me to only sleep on my own scheduled time. So please allow me to do that. Um, and therefore, they're aware that you're not just sleeping. Um, and also let them know that, you know, if you're active at nighttime, there's a reason behind that. Um, I think it's always good to let others know that it is a condition that you're um, suffering through. Um, and so therefore, the expectations are there. Um, and the brochures are great to summarize it. Um, you can always sh share the brochure, the audio brochure of others, let them hear it. I believe it's only like two minutes long. Um, so it's a really good one. Um, and if there are others that would like to learn more, um, either pass on my information or pass on the brochures as well. There's a lot of, lot of great resources out there. So that's a great question, Todd. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Any other questions out there? Go ahead, Diane. Thank you. Uh -huh. um, the brochure that you mentioned, I came in at about three minutes after you started. How do I, how do I get one of those brochures? Absolutely. So I am going to, um, all you have to do is uh, just connect with me um, afterwards or later, um, and then I'll be more than happy to send one to you. Um, and I'll give out my telephone number um, for all of you um, and then my email address as well if you'd like to connect with me that way. Uh, but my telephone number is 202-579-8035. And again, it's 202-579-8035. And just give me a call and I'll take down your information and mail it to you. And I believe Tom has, um, Tom, correct me if I'm wrong, you have the panelist information out there. So like our emails and so forth, are your um, attendees able to uh, gain our information from um, your site? Okay, um, I can call if nothing else. Yes, yes, please do. Please, yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Diane. Thank you. Hi, this is Sue. I'm the conference coordinator. Hi, yes. Um, your information is in the program if people want to check in there. Um, okay. And they can also just contact the PCB office and we'll be happy to send them your way. Wonderful. Wonderful. Okay. Sounds great. Well, thank you guys. If there's no more questions, I appreciate this opportunity to come out here and, and share this. And um, I think I do just see one hand. Hello. Hello. My name is Judy. Um, I don't know if you said this or not, and maybe I missed it, but is there a certain kind of treatment for this condition? 
Hi, Judy. Th- thanks so much for your question. So um, there is there's treatment available. I encourage anyone who has um, sleep issues to go ahead and uh, speak to your doctor um, about possible treatment considerations, whether it's not 24 or something else. But yeah, there's treatment available. Yes, well, I meant for the non-24 specifically, you know, I don't know if it would be different than, you know, insomnia, sure. the treatment, whatever, um, you know, okay. Yes. All right, you. thank you. Sure, mm-hmm. absolutely. So, yeah, there is treatment available, um, and there is treatment specific to non-24, um, and that is different from some of the other sleep disorders. And um, again, your doctor would be the best person to address it with. Um, but yes, absolutely. Okay, thank you. You're very welcome. Well, Maggie, thank- I'd like to thank you for being a, a very informative participant this afternoon for the Pennsylvania Council. Um, obviously, you can tell from the reaction you got from some of our speakers that uh, they're very interested in what you had to say. And and again, Thank Vanda both for permitting you to speak and for your support of our conference. Thank you, everyone. Appreciate it. You have a great one. Our next speaker is from Democracy Live. His name is Brian Finney. He is the CEO of Democracy Live. And Brian, I think the floor is yours. Well, Tom, thank you so much uh, for allowing me to come and, and speak to the Pennsylvania Council of the Blind here this afternoon. Uh, my name is Brian Finney. I'm the president of Democracy Live, and I believe joining me on the call um, is Melissa Carney. Uh, Melissa, are you with us today? I am here. Hello. Okay, terrific. Uh, I'll let, um, Melissa, do you want to just briefly introduce yourself, and then we'll um, shift back to me for some quick comments, and we'll go back to you for a, for a demonstration. Absolutely. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the PCB conference. I'm wearing two hats today. Um, I am your director of outreach and engagement, but I also serve as an educational outreach consultant for Democracy Live. So I will be demoing the Omni ballot today for you after Brian gives his remarks. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. And as Melissa mentioned, uh, we have a, a, a new technology in, in the state of Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and that is an at-home voting technology called OmniBallot. Um, as we all experienced in the 2020 presidential cycle, uh, this was a <laughs> unusual presidential election in, in many, many ways. But one of the, the, the key uh, realities is that more and more voters were voting at home. Um, and in fact, it's been an ongoing trend only um, enhanced because of, of an increase because of the COVID, of course, but it's been going on now for a number of years where more and more voters are voting on an absentee ballot from home. It's actually the fastest growing method of voting in the country is voting at home, even before the pandemic hit. So I don't think that that's going to be going away. Um, and I'm out here in, the, in the, the Seattle area, out in Washington State. We do 100% vote by mail. And back then, um, when we first launched uh, vote by mail, we realized that you know there is a significant percentage of voters that will be left behind if we don't provide an accessible option for voters to be able to vote independently and privately from home. And that's why OmniBallot was created, was to make sure that all voters, uh, regardless of disabilities, have the same right to be able to vote privately and independently and securely and safely from home. And so for the first time, uh, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania selected 
Democracy Live and, and our omni ballot application to make sure that that for those voters that want to be able to have the same right to vote at home on your tablet, on your device, on your computer, um, that you have that opportunity as your neighbors who are voting on their kitchen table. So that's what we've been trying to uh, uh, do with with uh, with uh, Pennsylvania. We're deploying in, I think, 24 states around the country. Uh, this technology has been around for over a decade um, in about you know, 2,500 jurisdictions and in nearly half the states. So it's a proven technology that's been deployed. We did it for the first time uh, in the presidential uh, election in, in, in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, we had a handful of voters that used it, um, but as we've seen in other states, it starts to snowball once forums like this occur and we can help get the word out and, and through education and outreach inform you all that if you wanted to vote independently and privately from home, you could do so. So with that, I think what I'll do is I'll turn it over to Melissa. And what she's going to do is walk you through a uh, uh, kind of a shortened version of, of the presentation. And then we'll have enough time because I think we have about a, a 30 minute window here. Uh, to be able to answer any questions that you might have. So with that, uh, Melissa, I think I'll turn it back over to you. Great. Um, before we begin, I just want to say that um, we will be giving an abbreviated demo of the system. Typically, we'll show you the entire process from start to finish. But because of time constraints, we just want to get down to the 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 beef of the presentation. And by beef, I mean the ballot itself. That's what we're all excited about. That's what we're all energized about. Um, so I'll, I'll explain briefly just what the beginning of the process will look like. Um, you'll be brought to a voter lookup page at first, and that's where you'll type in your voter-specific credentials. That'll be your first name, last name, date of birth, um, and in some cases, the last four digits of your social security number. Um, so I won't be demoing that for you today, just so we can skip a couple steps and just so we can get to the ballot. Um, so I will share my screen um, and I'll be using JAWS for Windows along with Google Chrome. Um, however, the system has been tested with numerous screen reader and browser combinations. This is just my personal preference, but you can use VoiceOver, NVDA, um, again, JAWS, um, you can use your Android, your iPhone, um, whatever makes you feel more comfortable. Um, and from a blind person's perspective, that's what's amazing is we have the freedom and the independence to use whatever forms of assistive technology we feel the most comfortable with. Meeting controls. Okay, so I'm going to share my screen. Ballot market Google Chrome. Ballot market Google Chrome. Main region. Let me turn down the rate a bit. Slower, slow, 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 slower. Okay, so again, you would have already gone past the voter lookup page and entered in your voter specific credentials. So this is the ballot marking page. This is the fun stuff. Okay. So at first you have this initial heading. May heading level one ballot marking. You'll hear ballot marking. If you down arrow, you'll then see a set of instructions. And this is uniform throughout the entire process. There's a heading that's denoting um, what specific part of the process and what page you're on. And then there's a set of instructions that tell you how to best proceed. So we're going to down arrow here. Your ballot is presented below. To mark your selection, click on the checkbox. To remove a selection, click on the checkbox again. To vote for a qualified write-in candidate who is not listed on the ballot, click the checkbox beside the write-in space at the end of the candidate list. Then type the candidate's name in the space. Heading level two official okay. ballot. 
Um, so again, I'm going to describe exactly what I'm doing as I'm doing it. So to, to easily navigate through the ballot and to make sure the process is organized, I'm going to use H for headings to move between the different contests. So let's see the first one. For U.S. Senator heading level three. Okay, and then I'm going to down arrow to see what our options are. Vote for not more than one. Group start for U.S. Senator. Three checkboxes. It'll tell you exactly how many options you have to choose from. Santa Claus checkbox not checked. Ebenezer Scrooge checkbox not checked. Ryden checkbox not checked. We have some fun options here. I'm actually going to arrow back up and I'm going to choose Santa Claus. Evan Santa Claus checkbox not checked. For U.S. Senator Group, Santa Claus checkbox checked. So I just pressed space on that. And as you can see, um, what's helpful is um, when you check that box, it not only told you which box you were checking, but it repeated the specific contest back at you. That way so there's, there's no confusion. Okay, so we're going to proceed on to the next contest. I'm going to press H again for heading. For representative to Congress heading level three. Once again, I'm going to down arrow. Vote for not more than one. Group start for representative to Congress. Four checkboxes. Amelia Earhart checkbox not checked. Charles Chuck Eager checkbox not checked. Charles Lindbergh checkbox not checked. Ryden checkbox not checked. Okay. Um, so those are our options. I'm going to go back up and check Amelia Earhart by pressing space. Char Charles Amelia Earhart checkbox not checked. For representative to Congress group, Amelia Earhart checkbox not checked. Checked. And now I'll proceed to the next contest using H for heading once again. City Council heading level three. Okay. Vote for not more than two. So as you heard or seeing, there are... A, a slightly different instructions here. It's asking you to choose two candidates rather than one. Um, so some contests on your ballot will appear this way. Um, so what I'm actually going to do here um, is I'm going to make an intentional error. That way you can see what happens if you were to make a mistake and only check one candidate instead of two. Okay, so I'm going to down arrow so we can hear our options here. Group start city council. Five checkboxes. Johnny Cash checkbox not checked. Elvis Presley checkbox not checked. Dolly Parton checkbox not checked. Write in one of two checkbox not checked. Okay, um, so again, I'm just going to check one candidate and not two. So you can see what happens on the review page if, if it detects that error, if you've made an error. Okay, so I'm going to up arrow and I'm going to choose Elvis. Dolly Elvis Presley checkbox not checked. City Council Group Elvis Presley checkbox checked. All right, and now we can proceed to the next contest on this ballot. For City Waste Director heading level three, vote for not more than one. Group start for City Waste Director. Two checkboxes. Dr. William McDougall checkbox not checked. Ryden checkbox not checked. Okay, so here I'm going to demonstrate how you would fill in a write-in candidate. You're going to check that box using the space bar. For City Waste Director Group, write-in checkbox checked. And then you're going to down arrow to the edit box that has now popped up. Write-in, edit. Okay. Forms mode on, write-in, edit. So we are going to write in the name of our CEO. Okay, 
And then we're going to escape out of that edit box. Ryan, forms mode off, virtual PC. And now you can see if you were to up Ryan. arrow and down arrow. Edit Ryan that edit box is now filled with our write-in candidate. So now it's safe to move on to the next contest. Article By the way, thank, thank you, Melissa, for yeah. voting for me for city waste director. I, yes, whole, absolutely. <laughs> being CEO of Democracy Live is just like a stepping stone, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always find it funny to do that. And um, <laughs> unfortunately, we don't have the flexibility to take volunteers from the audience, but that was, that, that is what we would do if we had more time. Um, so I'll just quickly wrap up the ballot and show you the review page and, and, um, conclude our demonstration. So this is the final contest on the ballot. Um, and you will hear and see that this is a written, um, written contest. So it's all text. Vote yes or no. Shall chapter I, section 103 of the Votersville City Charter be hereby amended as follows. Chapter one. Incorporation and General Provision Section 103. Wards established. There shall be three wards for the city of Votersville and the boundaries of the wards shall be fixed from time to time by the Board of Civil Authority subject to the approval of the City Council. The boundaries shall be fixed so as to provide equal or near equal distribution of population among the three wards in accordance with the most recent federal census. Group start Article 1. All right. Two checkboxes. So here we're checking yes or no. Yes checkbox not checked. No checkbox not checked. And we will check yes. Yes checkbox not checked. Article 1 group. Yes checkbox checked. Okay. And then if we continue to down arrow here after this contest. No check group end. Go back button. Continue button. You'll see a handy continue button. So you'll press space on that. Um, and that's also uniform with the um, voter credentials page that would have been before the ballot itself. There's always going to be that continue button at the bottom. So we're going to press space on that. Selection review heading level one. And there's that heading that I was telling you about that announces which part of the process you're on. So we can down arrow here for further instructions. Your ballot choices are shown below. To change any selection, click the change button next to your selection. Heading level two official ballot. Okay, so once again, we're just going to use H for heading to navigate through the contest. For U.S. Senator heading level three. Down arrow. Santa Claus. And then you'll see. Change for U.S. Senator button. So each contest has its own change button if you want to change that specific candidate. Okay, so we're going to move on to the next contest. For representative to Congress heading level three. Amelia Earhart, change for representative to Congress button. And next. City Council heading level three. Elvis Presley, warning, missing one of two selections. And there it is. That is that intentional error that we made. That is a warning similar to what's going to pop up again. If you only select one candidate, if you're supposed to select two. So you can choose to go back and revise that error. Um, so in order to do that, you would press down arrow. Change city council button. Okay. Hit the change button using your space key. City council heading level three. Um your screen reader will bring you directly to that heading of that specific contest. So all you have to do is down arrow and choose another candidate. The candidate that you chose is already selected. So you only have to select one more here. Vote for not more than two. Group start city council. Five checkboxes. 
Johnny Cash checkbox not checked. So we're gonna check Johnny Cash. City Council Group. Johnny Cash checkbox checked. And then we're going to down arrow. Elvis Presley checkbox checked. And just to show that that candidate, um, Elvis, is still checked. So now all we have to do is continue to down arrow. Dolly Parton checkbox not checked. Past, past these other candidates. Right in. One right in. Two group end. Go back to review page button. And then press the go back to review page. City council heading level three. Okay. And now we're back on that review page, still on the specific contest, but we're back to the review page. Um, we're going to down arrow. Johnny Cash, Elvis Presley, change city and council button. And now you button. see that there is no longer an error message now that you have selected two candidates instead of one. Okay, so we're going to proceed to the next contest on this review page. For city waste director heading level three, Ryan and Brian. Okay, there's our, our lovely city waste director. Uh, we're going to move on to the next contest once again. Article one heading level three. Yes. All Change right. article one button. And now we're going to continue to down arrow. Link skip the bottom. Go back button. Continue button. Want to press continue. Print your selections heading level one. Now this is where I'm going to um, stop for today with the demo, um, just so we can save enough time for extra marks and some questions. Um, but I'll explain a bit what this process looks like at the end of the ballot marking tool. It's different for each state. Um, every state is going to have um, its instructions on how you should return the ballot. This specific layout right here for um, print your selections, this is for the states that currently only offer electronic delivery and not electronic returns. So what I mean by this is you can mark the ballot independently, but you still need to print out your selections and mail them into your elections office. Um, so if you don't have a printer, the solution to that is um, if you can save it to PDF, save it to your computer. Um, you can save it to a flash drive, bring it to a friend's house, a, a library, um, wherever you can get to a printer, um, that's, that's how you can print it. And we all know that's not, uh, not the best solution. That's not a foolproof solution. Um, so what Democracy Live! has also introduced is an electronic return system that's not available in Pennsylvania yet. Um, it is available in, in certain states, I believe, West Virginia, North Carolina, I believe, um, yeah. and, and several other states. Um, and in that case, um, you can electronically sign. So you're not trying to look for a printer. You're not trying to figure out where you should be signing your name on the envelope. Um, you're simply writing your name using your keyboard, um, or you can turn a screen reader off on your iPhone and sign using your finger. Um, there's a bunch of different ways you can do it, but that is obviously the most accessible process. Um, and once that that's completed, your ballot is then submitted electronically. So that's the solution we all want. That's the solution we're all trying to advocate for, a fully accessible solution. And it's really up to the states right now on whether or not that is allowed. Um, so that's that's the entire process. Um, again, you know, we would be happy to organize a, a lengthier demo of the entire process in the future um, after the conference. And um, we're happy to take any questions. Hi, this is Doug Hunsinger. I'm a panelist. I have a question. Go ahead. 
What if you intentionally only want to vote for one of the three city council people? Will it let you still do that? I believe so. That's correct, Brian, right? That is correct. Yep. Thank you. you. So you don't have to fix that error. It's just letting you know, just in case you made that mistake, in case you want to go back and fix it, just so you have um, the utmost options at your disposal. Yeah, we'll get like 15 school board members and you only want to vote for two or three that you know or something like that. It just That's why I ask. <laughs> Thank and you. Sometimes that's more common than not. Right. Absolutely. This is Chris Hunsinger, the other half of the Hunsinger gang. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted to um, point out to people that Pennsylvania has changed uh, the name of its election portal um, just in the past couple of weeks. And it's no longer votespa.com. Um, and the other, the other thing is, remember that you have to specifically request this uh, electronic ballot delivery on the state website. And as of right now, am I correct in saying, it, it, at least in the presidential election, I know it was that application was separate from Democracy Live system. Some states actually have Democracy Live, um, so it's it's universal and consistent throughout. Some states have Democracy Live develop that application for an accessible absentee ballot, um, but I believe Pennsylvania is one of the ones that has their their own application that's separate from the portal. That's the way it was in the primary. Yes. You had to go to the PA one. And yes. the PA website is now vote.pa.gov. Um, that's the new version of it. Mm-hmm. And it's probably more secure than the other one was. This is Brian. I'll just follow briefly up with, with um, and good to hear from you, Christine. Um, you know, it, it's because of the efforts uh, of you all at the local level in, in, in Pennsylvania, which is why the, the, the state moved forward on um, – on providing this accessible balloting tool. Um, so I, I applaud uh, all of you for being involved to the extent that uh, the state was able to go ahead and, and make this happen. A lot of states don't offer it. Um, and it's really, in our experience, it's only been because of local advocacy, uh, you know, kind of agitating, advocating for equal access to voting at home. Does it ever happen? So just congratulations on, on making it happen. Now, as, as Melissa mentioned, you know, the next step, um, is to do the full electronic return. Um, and, and that's just an education process, I think, over time. Um, we just wrapped up an election in Boston, I think, yesterday, where those voters were able to do the full electronic uh, access the ballot and then return it electronically um, from their devices. Um, but it was a very, you know, it's, it's a terrific effort on your part to at least get that first, you know, uh, effort underway in, in Pennsylvania, and then with further education and effort, perhaps turning on electronic return in the future. And if I can add to that, there's two parts of advocacy. I think we all get very excited and rightfully so once we achieve a victory. So, you know, in Pennsylvania, once we had accessible absentee voting as a reliable option, um, but then it becomes making sure the option stays around for good. Um, so we have to make sure that we're, we're utilizing the platform. We're getting more and more people um, interested in it, making sure that we're making more people aware of it um, so that it, it doesn't disappear. We want to show growing interest um, in, in this new option and um, in accessible absentee voting in general. Any other questions? I have one more comment. Go right ahead. Um, and that is, if we can enlist the 
assistance of our military friends in Pennsylvania because they don't have fully electronic UCAVA voting either, which is what military people use when they're out of the area. Um, I wouldn't hold my breath to get help from, say, the, the, the people who are um, vacationing in France, but um, the military voters who are out of state, they have to jump through hoops to get their um, voting taken care of as well. So if we could enlist their help, because once they get their services um, as fully electronic, then nobody can argue that we can't have it as fully electronic. Yes. And that's the bottom line on that little number. <laughs> Christine, that, that's a great reminder. Um, in fact, just anecdotally, in the last you know handful of weeks, uh, we had a number of elections going on around the country, and we've had uh, voters who are in the Marines stationed in the uh, Kabul, Afghanistan airport um, during election day. And, and because of technologies like this, they're able to use our system to be able to fully vote, even though they were kind of protecting the compound at the airport. Um, so you're right. We, we, you know, the combination of, of both the military and overseas voters combined with, with the, what Rutgers university said, uh, is the largest, you know, kind of subgroup of voters in the country, um, uh, which are voters with disabilities. I think 38 million voters around the country and, and about 16% of the population have some level of disability. So it's a significant population combined with the overseas and military. There's a real need to have an alternative to paper-based, you know, postal balloting. Yeah. Hi, this is Will uh, Grignon from Florida. Um, I came in late. Um, fascinating discussion. I was wondering, you know, recently we've seen trends in states. Um, there's been a backlash against uh, voter empowerment under the guise of uh, protecting against uh, voter fraud. Is there any such movement in Pennsylvania? And would this system be a target of that uh, initiative? Absolutely. Absolutely, there is in Pennsylvania. Um, and, and there's a group in Pennsylvania who is still trying to get us to audit the presidential election. So what can you say? Mm-hmm. Brian, do you, it might be helpful. Do you, um, could you just give a, a brief snapshot of the, the security measures that Democracy Live has undergone? I know you've passed a lot of yeah. very, um, very serious inspections. Absolutely. And, and, and for the caller from Florida, uh, just so you know, the Florida Council of the Blind um, also was, was was advocating and ended up getting um, a victory down there to provide uh, accessible absentee voting in, in the state of Florida. In fact, we did a, a five-county pilot down in Florida in the November election. So you should be able to see this uh, statewide moving forward. That's just for, for the Florida caller. Melissa, to your, um, to your really good point, um, yes, the, the security is, is, you know, there has, doesn't have to be the tension between uh, security and accessibility. Like I think some people think that there has to be. Uh, the reality is, is that you can do both. And, and so with that, we've been through a number of, of security reviews beyond just deploying this type of technology in over 4,000 elections over the last decade with no compromises. But we have been through a review by the Department of Homeland Security, uh, the Department of, of um, c- Cybersecurity and Infrastructure. Uh, at, at the U.S. Um, CISA agency. Um, we've been selected by the U.S. Department of Defense. And in fact, we were selected also by the U.S. Um, State Department last year to do the same type of technology, but in the Middle East, where we had to do it in Farsi, which is an uh, interesting challenge. Um, 
so we've been through a number of, of these reviews. We've had over 100 cybersecurity researchers uh, review it, been certified in every state that requires certification. So there's a, a lot of security analysis and review, and it's ongoing all the time to make sure that meets the, the highest standards for security. We happen to partner with Amazon, uh, AWS on this, on this uh, technology. They were just selected by the National Security Agency, the NSA, and we use the same uh, AWS environment as you know, the CIA and Department of Defense and, and the NSA have all approved uh, Amazon AWS to store some of the nation's most critical documents. In our case, it happens to be a ballot. Well, I just want to jump in and, and say that if, if anyone has any questions, um, please feel free to contact me um, with any accessibility questions. Um, if you'd like me to show you the ballot, if you have any questions about how it might interact with a specific screen reader, um, I'm, I'm happy to answer those questions individually from our peers. Um, you can find my contact information on the PCB website, um, and I'm sure you'll it, you'll hear it a lot throughout the conference. Um, and thank you so much. It was a pleasure giving this demo to you all. Hi, this is Sue. I did have a question, though. This system can just be submitted electronically, but the absentee ballot that we were using in Pennsylvania, we had to print it out. Is that the difference between using the Democracy Live portal and using what Pennsylvania wanted us to use. Yeah, it, this is Brian and, and maybe Melissa, did you want to speak to that? Yeah, so so it depends state by state. Um, some states, because of security, are not yet comfortable with electronic return. So even though Pennsylvania deploys Democracy Live system, so this same system you're seeing here today, um, Unfortunately, Pennsylvania has not yet approved electronic return. So right now it's required that we print out our ballots and, and provide a signature. Um, but in states that have kind of, you know, moved beyond that and really have taken more of an interest in full accessibility rather than half accessibility and understand that signing our name in print and trying to find a signature line is not practical, um, th those are the states where electronic um, return is um, is used. So Democracy Live has both capabilities. It's just up to um, the state's control and requirements as to which system Democracy Live um, can can deploy there. If that if that answers your question. Yes, thank you. But the other thing that Sue or that you had mentioned, Melissa, was that even in Pennsylvania we can save um, our ballot to PDF, which yeah. I never have done since I had a printer. Um, you could save the PDF and put it on a thumb drive and take it to someone else's house to print. And honestly, that's a good backup just to to do by default. Um, I had a print. I was lucky enough to have a printer um, in my apartment. But what I did do was just just in case my computer crashed or something happened. Um, you know, you can always remark your ballot. But if you want to save yourself the time and the um, the agony of, of going through that process again. And um, you can just save your ballot as a PDF, just as a backup, um, just in case your printer's having issues, your computer's having issues. That way you have that document all ready to go, um, no matter when, when you choose to print it. Um, it's at your discretion and it's in your control. Well, I'd like to close out this session by thanking Brian Finney and Melissa Carney for your 
information that you're sharing with us. I think we're all going to find it extremely useful because um, it makes it more convenient to vote this way. And who knows what will happen with the Delta variant between now and November. And so this might even be more important if we fall back into the state we were in a year or so ago. So again, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Our next speaker, speakers, I should say, are from the CNI. We have three speakers from the CNI, Chelsea White, who is the outreach specialist. David Johnson is the director of training. And Melissa Allman is the advocacy and government relations coordinator. Chelsea, I'll turn the program over to you. Um, good afternoon. Um, thank you all for joining us. Um, I am Chelsea White. I'm the outreach specialist for the Seeing Eye. And um, like Tom said, Dave and Melissa um, have joined us as well. Uh, and we would like to uh, give you a little bit of information about the Seeing Eye uh, in our program, kind of what we do and how we operate. Um, and then Dave is going to update you all on what's been going on lately. Um, because we all know that COVID has changed things drastically. Uh, and then Melissa um, is going to give you a little bit of information about what we are doing um, in the advocacy ring of um, the Seeing Eye and dog guides in general. So um, so I would like to be the one to um, give you a little bit of information about the Seeing Eye and our program. Um, we are located in Morristown, New Jersey. Um, we are um, one of the dog guide schools here in the United States, and um, we do the whole sort of process. Um, we breed, raise, and train uh, the dogs, and then we also train the person with the dog and then um, follow up with that person um, once they've completed training in, in our home and um, we'll provide you know follow-up services to that person throughout um, that person's relationship, uh, working relationship with their dog. So, um, a little bit into that. So, um, we breed all of our own dogs. We use German Shepherds, Labrador Retrievers, Golden Retrievers, and we also cross the lab with the Golden. Um, we breed, we purpose breed. So we breed for the work, um, and we also breed for health. Uh, we, for example, um, we really don't see hip dysplasia in our dogs. Um, hip dysplasia is something that's very common in large breed dogs, shepherds, labs. And um, it causes the dog over time to um, have issues with their hips um, so that, you know, when they're four, five, six, seven, eight years old, um, you know, they become, it becomes very painful and, and that kind of thing. So um, for them to work you know, much past six or seven would be really tough. So um, because of breeding, um, we just, it's not something that we see in our dogs. Um, there's also an eye condition in Labrador is called progressive retinal atrophy that is very similar to RP. And um, so it causes the dog to lose vision over time. Um, and it typically doesn't show up in a dog until they're hmm, say four or five. Um, and that's also something that we don't see in our dogs anymore because of our breeding. Um, so breed all of our own dogs, um, do all of our own raising and training of the dogs. When they are about uh, eight weeks old, they go to a puppy raiser. 
And puppy raisers are responsible for um, teaching basic obedience and house manners. Um, so, you know, housebreaking, um, you know, not chewing on your shoes, uh, those kinds of things. And the basic obedience, um, sit, um, come when called, that kind of thing. Um, and then they're also responsible for socialization. So taking the dog with them out into the public and getting them used to being in the public. Um, so going to the grocery store, going to a kid's soccer game, going to the mall, um, riding on a bus, um, riding in the car, um, all of those things that, you know, you as a blind or visually impaired person might do, um, get the dog used to being in those situations and the sights and the sounds and the smells and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and also behaving in those situations. So if you're in a restaurant, um, the dog is, you know, down under the table, under your chair, um, you know, they're out of the way, they're quiet. Um, you know, they're not jumping up and, you know, stealing food or, um, you know, up barking at people or whatever. They're down, they're quiet, um, and they're out of the way. Um, once puppies are about 14 to 16 months old, um, they come back to us. So they come back to the seeing eye uh, and uh, they either go into breeding, uh, they go into training or um, may go out uh, to do another job or to be uh, just a wonderful family pet and go into our adoption uh, program. If they go into training, um, training is four months long, and that's where they learn to be a seeing eye dog. Um, that's where they learn to do the stuff uh, for a blind or visually impaired person that, that they do. So in that four months, um, they're going to learn to pull in a harness, um, they're going to learn the directional commands of left, right, and forward. They are going to learn to stop at elevation changes. So to stop at the down and the up curb or down in the, or the down and the up ramp of the street or the top or the bottom of flights of stairs. And then they're going to wait for you to tell them, you know, either forward down those stairs or up those stairs or, you know, forward across the street. So they're also going to learn to avoid obstacles. So to take you around all that stuff that's out there that you could run into, trip over, you know, bump into, knock over, um, get you around that stuff that's out there. The trash cans, the bicycles, the bike racks, the light poles, the trees, the people, um, tables, chairs, um, all that stuff. That stuff that's out there in the environment. So they're going to um, be trained to not only walk around it themselves, but to pick the direction around that obstacle that would get both them and you around it safely. Um, dogs are also taught intelligent disobedience. Um, intelligent disobedience basically says, if I give my dog a directional command, um, and I am a guide dog user, um, if uh, if the particular situation that we would be going into is not safe, if I were to tell her forward and it would not be safe for a particular reason, she would refuse the command and, and not move. Um, so you might see that, say you got on the train, um, it's a commuter train, like a light rail, got on the train, got at your stop, got off. 
And as you were getting off, um, it got a little jostled. Maybe it was really crowded and, you know, you kind of got a little jostled, a little turned around. And you think in your head that straight ahead forward is up the platform and then, you know, up out of the station. When in reality, you got a little turned around and straight forward would be across the platform and off the other side, uh, onto the tracks on the other side. And so you tell your dog forward and they say, "Uh uh-uh. And they may pull off to your right or off to your left, which is basically them saying, hey, if we went straight, we can't go straight. That's not safe. Um, Up the platform is this way. Um, So that is intelligent disobedience. Disobeyed the commander forward because that particular direction was not safe. Um, And then them pulling off to the left or to the right is also um, information for you. That to then go, ah, got it. I got a little turned around. We need to go this way. Okay. Um, so that is pretty much what dogs, um, what dogs are trained to do. Um, they are not GPSs. Um, I cannot say, you know, dog, take me to Starbucks and magically end up at Starbucks. Um, those good orientation and mobility skills are critical when it comes to working with a dog. Knowing where you're at, knowing how to get to where you're going um, is is super important. Um, you need to be able to direct your dog with the lefts, rights, and forwards to get to the places that you want to go. Um, or, you know, to be able to use GPS or, or whatever it is that you use to keep yourself orientated. But um, you need to be able to have some sense of where you're going and then to be able to direct your dog to the places that you want and need to go. So that's, um, that is pretty much sort of what dogs do um, in a nutshell and don't do. Uh, and a little bit, like I said, I mentioned, we are in the seeing eyes in Morristown, New Jersey. We do the whole process. We breed, raise and train the dogs um, I mentioned Shepherd's Labs, Golden's Lab, Golden Crosses are the dogs that we use. Uh, we, if you are coming to us for your first dog, you're going to spend almost four weeks with us. Um, it's a couple days shy of four weeks. Uh, if you are coming for second, third, fourth, whatever subsequent dog after that first dog, um, training is a week shorter. Um, we do have two other programs for folks who have had dogs from us before. Um, we have what we call a home and away program, which basically means you would come to the seeing eye uh, usually for about a week and a half or so. Start your training um, in Morristown at the seeing eye and then go home with an instructor for another three or four or five days and complete your training at home. Um, we also do home trainings as well. Um, so we would bring the dog to you and do your training um, with your dog in your home environment. Um, now, the home and away and the um, home placement program, both of those, like I said, are only for folks who have had dogs from us before. Um, that's not something that we do for a first-time handler. So um, that is pretty much us. 
and kind of a little bit about our programs. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Dave and kind of let him update you on what we've been doing in this last year and a half with crazy COVID. Um, so hi, everyone. I'm pleased to be here. And thank you, Chelsea. That was good coverage. Um, as, as Chelsea said, we're a, a facility-based program here in Morristown, New Jersey. And uh, under the best of circumstances, we can serve uh, 24 individuals per month in our, uh, in our facility here. Um, and that would be a uh, four-to-one ratio of four students to one instructor. And uh, we have a sort of a hotel facility here. I kind of hate to call it a dormitory anymore because it's a lot nicer than a dormitory. Um, but the, the basis for our training here in Morristown uh, and bringing people here is because it's the familiar space for the dog. The dog was taught in this space and, and this area, and it's easier for the dog to transfer its skills to the new handler uh, in a, in a familiar area. It's less stressful for the dog. It's not because we like to take visually impaired people and make them learn to travel in a strange place. So, uh, given that we are facility based, COVID has definitely had an impact on us. And if I take us back to, uh, March or so of 2020, um, Prior to that, we, as our leadership team, was monitoring the COVID situation in our country, um, as everybody was. But, you know, we were listening intently, wondering, as everybody else was, what was going to happen. And we had a class of it. Oh, there were at least 20 people here in residence in March of 2020. And as things began to unfold with the virus, I found myself having daily gatherings with the class to update them on what. I and leadership here was thinking um, we had first told everybody that we were going to finish the class um, at the two and a half week mark where the retrains would normally go home and the uh, retrains being people who have had dogs from us before and that we were going to concentrate on getting all the new students out at the same time. And that would have been on a Thursday, but um Every day the rules changed and, and the walls started closing in. And I believe we got the entire place, uh, all the students home on St. Patrick's Day, which was either a Tuesday or a Wednesday that year. And we thought, okay, we'll, uh, we'll give ourselves a couple weeks rest to see what happens here. And we'll be back in business in, in April. And uh, the rest is history. As everyone knows, it was a big joke. And, um, instead of uh, what, what we did in addition to sending the students home was we sent all our staff home except for folks who uh, take care of animals. So our veterinary staff and our kennel staff on both our this campus, our, our main campus in Morristown, and we have a breeding center station in uh, Chester, New Jersey. And that's a large staff that that maintains care of all the, the breeding dogs. So they stayed working and the rest of us went home. Uh, and we realized after two weeks that it was going to be long-term. So we decided that uh, uh, keeping dogs in space here on our campus was not viable. Uh, it wasn't good for the dogs. They weren't getting any uh, enrichment training. They weren't getting out of the kennels. And so we had, 
I, I know for a fact we had 203 dogs on campus and we placed all of those dogs in a little less than two weeks. And placing meant um, returning them either to the puppy raiser who raised them or volunteer puppy raisers or staff members. We, we had dogs everywhere and just wanted to make sure they got good care and and uh, were kept healthy and stimulated and that our then our kennel staff wouldn't have to come to campus any longer. We did stop breeding dogs at that point because we knew we were going to be out for a couple months uh, and suspending suspending service. We were never the thing I never really completely closes because if you have animals to care for, you can't close. So we kept maintaining our uh, admissions office working from home and received applications. The training managers were fielding phone calls, uh, supporting people with their dogs over the phone during during our absence. And our leadership team met, I don't know, three to four times a week for many hours. And we, while we had a, a disaster recovery plan, we developed a specific pandemic recovery plan and management and recovery plan um, so that we could start figuring out how we would return to service uh, when when the smoke cleared. So uh, long story short, uh, fast forward, we were able to start uh, returning dogs to campus in uh, late June, early, uh, no, it was July 6th, sorry, July 6th of 2020. Uh, we started bringing dogs back and we brought the most trained dogs back first. Those were the ones that were ready, up and ready to go to go to bat um, in the next class. And we we had a class in August. And uh, then we've been having classes since. We did suspend a month uh, last January after the holidays. We were concerned because they were talking about potential for surge. This was before there was vaccine. So we opted not to have a January class because we were afraid of a surge when uh, people had been with family members for the holidays. So other than that, what have we done? Uh, we have been serving pretty much 50% of our normal capacity um, because of spacing um, issues. We keep people six feet apart for dining. Um, one of the uh, beauties of the CNI is that we're very social and our staff has always joined students. Um, at meals and we share the same dining room and it's a formal dining room, not a cafeteria. And uh, we can't do that right now. Um, we've got mandatory masking on campus. Most of the people we're serving at the moment are vaccinated um, by their choice. We are serving unvaccinated people, but if anybody is unvaccinated, they have to quarantine in a hotel for two weeks prior to coming here and everybody is providing us with a negative COVID test before they come. Um, we are serving Canadians. We are, are uh, North America. We serve all of North America. And we have been serving Canadians since the border opened again um, so that they could come down. And uh, I think we've probably served 10 or a dozen Canadians uh, during the pandemic, which is great because uh, there's limitations on, on what can be done in Canada. So um, we're, we're really happy and proud to be back in business. We would love to be full, full service again, 
but everything's guarded. Um, we are waiting right now to see what happens with Delta. Um, we read fanatically um, about updates, health updates, and what we should be worried about and what we shouldn't. Um, we managed to squeak out 143 partnerships this year. We served 143 people in the last year. Uh, Chelsea talked about uh, about our different training programs, and one of them was what we call the home turnover, where we'll uh, deliver a dog to a retrain, usually their senior citizens who aren't as up to being part of our campus-based program. And we served 21 people that way this year, this past year. Uh, our fiscal year starts October 1, and as I did last year, I budgeted for a normal year of serving 250 to 260 uh, individuals with dogs. And uh, it looks at this moment like we're not going to be able to amp up to uh, having four students back in per instructor for quite a while. We thought we would maybe add one to each instructor's uh, training training repertoire, but th that's not happening right now just because of, of changes in the environment. Um, and I don't know, we, we're just going to play it by ear, let the science tell us what we have to do. Um, we are traveling limitedly to support people. Um, Chelsea mentioned that uh, we pledge a lifetime of support for a partnerships, that, which means if we can't fix somebody's problems by phone we're going to fly to them wherever they are in north america and solve their try and solve their their problems whether it be a mobility or a dog behavior problem we stopped traveling entirely during the pandemic and have been back at it now some because we do provide a personal home interview for everyone who applies we were doing that by zoom during pandemic now we are uh, trying to resume live in-person visits um within within reason so we're, we're sort of we're sort of dancing with it and doing what we can while we can um and I, I know as of last week we had 239 people waiting uh to be served and basically that's a normal a little less than a normal year's waiting list um usually usually they're not all piled on top of each other like that so we could clear that list out in a year's time but more Typically, more um, applications just keep rolling in as as uh, as time goes by. So we're going to work on chiseling away at everything and do our best to come up with creative ways to serve people. Um, we're very committed to doing what we do, and uh, we have resumed breeding dogs. We we only stopped breeding for the months that we weren't training. And, and that way we have, have pushed out the inventory of the dogs that we had already bred. And uh, on October 1st, we'll, we'll start our, you know, our inventory all over again and uh, get working on stuff. So there's been a lot of things happening in, in the advocacy world. And uh, Melissa Allman is our advocacy and public relations uh specialist and government relations sorry and i'd like to pass it on to melissa if you're there melissa well good afternoon everybody um my name is melissa allman and as he said he's telling the absolute truth i'm the advocacy and government relations specialist here at the seeing eye i have been employed here since april of 2018 for those of you who aren't familiar with me um and my dog luna is a yellow lab um, Golden Cross, and she is 
lying to the left of me on her bed. And she's kind of hoping this is going to be about her. We've been matched since uh, the January class of 2017. So just to tell you a little bit about what, well, obviously there's been a lot on the advocacy front that happened during the the sort of most um, difficult months of COVID. I think as many of you know, in January, the Department of Transportation finalized and issued its regulations on traveling by air with service animals. And although during COVID, we made public comment on our concerns about some of the things that were going to be in those regulations, those were in fact promulgated. And so now, as you likely know, when we fly, we have to do the service animal air transportation form where airlines are allowed to require it. And most airlines have chosen to do that. So one of the things that I have been spending a lot of time on um, in the past year or so, well, since January really is educating myself and our community about these regulations and what they mean for us. And also dialoguing with the airlines. I am on the um, Assistance Dogs International Legislative and Advocacy Committee. And so we have been working with the airlines to educate them about the importance of accessibility of the forms and also to educate the airlines about things that they can do to make the process as seamless as possible for guide dog handlers. It is far from seamless. Some airlines are doing a better job with that than others, but we continue to work with them. And we also, one of the things that has kept me busy lately is that more and more guide dog handlers, um, our grads are traveling on different airlines. And then, uh, so I'll get a comment about, well, I've had an issue with this airline um, in terms of accessibility of how I upload the form on their website. And then I find out that something has changed since the last time I looked at that website. So that's been, um, you know, definitely an advocacy project that's been, that is ongoing and will continue. Um, but also we, I, as I think many of you know, in the meantime, as we've been dealing with not only new regulations, but the life of travelers during a pandemic, we, in collaboration with Guide Dogs for the Blind, released an airport video, um, an airport sort of etiquette and tips video for airlines and TSA personnel and individuals who would be engaging with our community and blind and, and people who are blind and have low vision in the air travel context about the best ways to engage with us, appropriate etiquette when engaging with a guide dog handler and things of that nature. So um, the two schools have worked very hard to publicize that video as much as possible and make sure that airlines have it. And this is not brand new news, but just in case you hadn't heard about it, I wanted to, to put that out there. Another thing that we are working on and well, we are going to be working on, but we obviously have to wait for our fiscal year beginning on October 1st and it will take time, but it's going to happen at some point is we're going to be developing an app with um, materials concerning access rights and laws and resources and educational materials and tools that people can use because we know that people need this information 
and they they oftentimes are not at a computer they're on their phones but they don't want to scroll through a big block of text maybe they just want information about the housing law or perhaps they just want information about what state or what what agency they could contact if they feel like they might need to explore getting some legal services or you know what particular type of access issue they're looking for in their state or province so that every, you know we've 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 mentioned this app before people are excited about it um, but i urge and ask for patience because it's going to be quite an undertaking and it will it's going to be a work in progress so that's one thing that we're working on another thing that we're going to be working on is a law enforcement education program that we're going to pilot in New Jersey for the first year or two concerning guide dog protection laws the laws which in the case of New Jersey is Dusty's law that that are there to provide us with rights and remedies in the event that that our our dogs are attacked some state laws are stronger than others but regard a law is only as good as the enforcement and despite that we have such a strong law in New Jersey we're discovering that a lot of times law enforcement really doesn't know about the law so we're going to be working on a law enforcement education program there and and starting that in New Jersey so those are some advocacy initiatives and efforts that are underway and um and I also certainly appreciate the opportunity to engage with individual guide dog handlers as as we continue to navigate the access issues presented by our strange new you know world that we find ourselves in during this pandemic so dave i will pass it back to you thank you melissa um i think we could probably uh turn to our hosts and allow for questions if we could answer questions from the audience it'd just be great if you could tell us who you're addressing a question to Okay, my name is October, and I have two questions for you. Number one, do you ever use extensive um, cane travel or miniature guide horses, number one? And number two, do animals have to take COVID shots as do humans? Um, I'm not sure. Um, so, no, there are no COVID shots for, for, uh, for animals. And uh, the, the incidence of transmission between animals and humans very, very low. It has happened, but very low. Um, the we don't do horses at all. Uh, we oh. are the oldest guide dog school in the world, and we do dogs only. And um, oh. unless I understood your question about canes, what was your question? Yes, do you ever have extensive cane travel? Do you have to? Um, you have to have basic skills. Um, and be able to travel independently before you get a dog because you, you do have to be able to direct the dog to where you need to go. Okay. I was just curious if I did that or not. Thank you. You're welcome. I guess. So if, if there aren't any other questions, um, right now, um, but if you come up with something later and want to, uh, get in touch with us, uh, give uh, contact information and, um, and, and then probably sign off. But um, so seeing eyes website is www.seeing eye. So S E E I N G E Y E.org. Um, 
our phone number is 800-539-4425. You can also email admissions at seeingeye.org, and that will go to our admissions folks. So if you have any questions about the application process or um, anything to do with, you know, sort of admissions and and that whole thing, um, if you emailed admissions at seeingeye.org, that would get you to to the folks uh, over in admissions. Um, My email address, uh, if you have any kind of just general questions about working with a dog or, you know, those kinds of things or um, having us out to present somewhere else at another conference or any of those kinds of um, general sort of outreach, public relations type of stuff. My email is white, like the color, C for Chelsea, at seeingeye.org. So it's white C at seeingeye.org. I also want to say that if you want to go to the part of our website that has public access information, we have a a pretty extensive portfolio of resources there. Um, If you just go to seeingeye.org, like Chelsea said, and then but just instead do seeingeye.org slash access, it will take you there. So seeingeye.org slash access. And if you have a question for me, and by the way, this is Melissa, I'm sorry if I didn't clarify that I was speaking. If you have a question for me, you can send an email to advocacy at seeingeye.org. I have a question. This is Sue Lickenfels. Uh, Melissa, with the airlines and their new policies, do you have to fill out a form for every airline? You have to fill out a form for every reservation. So if you made a reservation on Delta and a reservation on American and a reservation on, I don't know, United, yes, you have to fill out a form each time. It must be dated um, either on or after the date of your reservation because one of the questions people have is, well, can I just do a form and kind of have it handy and use it for every airline as long as my dog's vaccination is good? No, because if I made my reservation on September 16th, but I'm using a form from July, that's going to be red flagged by the airlines. They want to know that it's current. Um, the DOT form is standard. The airlines are required to use a standard DOT form. They're supposed to be having an accessible version of it on their website. Most airlines are doing that at this point. Um, we are still kind of pushing on the, the couple here and there, like Frontier didn't for a while. That might have changed. Um But if for some reason um, you don't know if the airline you're going to be dealing with has or you don't want to go find the form on their site, the the Department of Transportation has it um, on their site. It's a standard form. It doesn't really matter if you get it from them instead. And we have a link to that on that access page that I just mentioned. So it's a standard form. Yes. For all of them. Yes. But they each need one. For each reservation. Yeah. Okay. So I flew United a few weeks ago and it was a round trip and I had a form, but if I decide to fly, you know, American airlines next week, I'm going to have to do it again. There are a couple of airlines that are trying to make it easier for you. 
They are Alaska Airlines and American Airlines. They allow you to create a service animal ID that is good for a certain period of time so that you don't have to do the form every time you can plug it into your reservation. Okay. Thank you. They're the only two airlines so far that are doing that. Chelsea, this is Tom Bergender. I have a question. Uh, you've, you've already mentioned that the CNI makes a commitment to work with its graduates for the life of the dog in terms of trying to resolve issues by phone or otherwise, or even in person. Does the CNI provide any medications or any subsidies for medical care for the dogs? Uh, no, we do not. Um, so because we give ownership of the dog to you when you complete training, so you go home, dog is yours. Um, and we maintain no right to that dog whatsoever. Um, so once you've completed training and are heading home, that dog is legally and literally your property. So, um, because we give, um, ownership, um, you know, part of owning something is taking responsibility for that, you know, that living thing. Um, and, and so part of responsibility is, you know, food and veterinary costs and medication and, and those kinds of things. So a related question, as part of the application process, does the CNI take into consideration whether a person is able to sufficiently address those issues while they own the dog? Um, Dave, that's a good question for you that I should know that I don't. <laughs> Part of the application that, that you sign that says that you're able to, uh, that, that talks about how much it costs to maintain a dog, Dave? We, we have it on our application we have, we, and we change the numbers, you know, as healthcare costs change, but we, uh, like people to know what they're headed into and to be able to understand that they have to support the dog um, as they would. I mean, we all need to know these things when we go into even just having a pet, what, what it's going to cost us and what, it, what could happen. So we take that into consideration. Well, you mentioned about airlines. Is that all... Does that apply if you were to take a train, number one? And number two, I live in a personal care home, and I'm told the only pet or animal that anyone is allowed to have where I live is a cat. I've never heard of a seeing eye cat. So if I wanted to take training for a dog or a guide horse or something, would I have to move or what would I do? No, the law, so the, the Fair Housing Act allows you um, to have uh, what is known as an assistance animal, which is a broad umbrella term mm -hmm. that covers not only task trained service animals like guide dogs, but also emotional support animals. Um, and huh. so the answer to that is that your um, your community would be required to unless they're, they're, they're supposed to be making a reasonable accommodation for you and allowing you to have your your mm -hmm. guide dog um, there with you. So that there's a law that protects you there. And as far as the form that I was referencing, that is just in terms of air travel. That's not oh. the case for transportation such as trains and buses. Hmm. Okay, thank you. I just want to say thank you to everybody. Uh, thank you for having us. And uh, if in the future you have any other questions or 
uh, are interested in our program, uh, we would love to hear from you. So. Can I slip in one more question? Sure. This is yeah. this is Sue Lickenfels. Um, you folks are not training um, dogs with people that are in wheelchairs, are you? Um, currently, we are only training dogs for folks in wheelchairs who have had dogs from us before. Um, so we have a couple of graduates who came to us, got dogs. Um, they were not in wheelchairs and for, you know, because of, of accidents or, or such, um, then have found themselves in wheelchairs. And so we um, still support those folks, um, but we do not um, are, are not accepting applications from folks um, in wheelchairs who have not had dogs from us before. Um, it's it's a, a huge undertaking um, to train a dog uh, to guide somebody in a wheelchair. So, um, and I don't know, Dave, if you want to add to that. We're the only school training dogs to guide chairs at this point. And um, we have had the policy of sticking with our own grads um, who we've trained previously. I would entertain speaking with folks um, who have a need, who have traveled with a dog before. Um, we certainly, uh, as, as Chelsea said, it's, it's a monumental undertaking. I, uh, but my heart goes out to folks and I want to try and do what we can. So if, if people had an interest in uh, asking questions about that, they should contact us and we should have a conversation. All right. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I am. Um, I have actually had um, dogs from Paws with a Cause um, that trained for the wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had two dogs from them. So thank were, you. I appreciate it. They were it. guides? They were, yeah, they were guide and service. Oh, okay. Yeah. Great. Well, as the uh, master of ceremonies or host or whatever I'm called today, on behalf of the Pennsylvania Council of the Blind, I'd like to thank Chelsea and Dave and Melissa for for your information. It's been very, very well received. I mean, I know that uh, uh, anybody who's been blind for any length of time knows about the CNI. It's almost a generic term, of course. Anybody th- talking about a guide dog always talks about the dog being a CNI dog. Um, so you're, you're almost equivalent to Scotch tape. Uh, but again. <laughs> Thank, thank you very much for, uh, for, for being a part of our program and for your support. Oh, Absolutely. Our pleasure. Thank and you for thank having you us. Thank you so much. Can I just throw out there, too, that Seeing Eye is a trademark. So, um, you know, it is, it is specific to our school. So I guess if Scotch Tape had that, you know, if they're doing the same thing that we are, then I guess, I guess we're in good company. Well, the rest of the world ignores your trademark because when they refer to the guide dogs, it's almost always a CNI dog. Yep. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you, everybody. And and hopefully we will see you all next year in person. We'd love to have you. Fantastic. All right. Bye. Take care now. Bye, everybody. Now I'd like to introduce Andy Bernstein from Accessible Pharmacy. Andy is the founder of the uh, organization and he has a couple of Pennsylvania employees with him that he would like to introduce. Andy, you can take over. 
All right. Thank you so much, Tom. I really appreciate it. And hello, everyone. Um, thank you so much for including me. Thank you, Tom, Rick, uh, Sue, Marianne, everyone who helped put this together. And I'm sorry if I missed anyone, but thank you all. Um, I do have two of my uh, new colleagues joining us today. Um, Emily Gindelsperger and Lynn Heights are both working with us. Uh, Lynn is the Director of Business Development for Eastern Pennsylvania. And Emily is the Director of Business Development for Western Pennsylvania. Uh, and they just joined us recently, and we're really grateful to uh, have them on our team and uh, introduce them today as well. Um, but I'll tell the story. I'll give a little bit of background about our company and explain what we do. Um, and uh, I'd love to answer some questions afterwards. In the event that we do run out of time and anyone has any questions, um, please feel free to email me directly. My email address is Andy, which is A-N-D-Y, at AccessiblePharmacy.com. And uh, I'll get back to you. And if it's a healthcare question, I'll, I'll pull someone from our healthcare team on board. All right. So for those of you who do not know us, we are Accessible Pharmacy Services for the Blind. We are a home delivery pharmacy specializing in blind and low vision patients. We're the only provider of its kind that does everything that we do. We are the largest blind-owned healthcare company in the country. And we're based in Pennsylvania. Um, I live in West Philadelphia on University of Pennsylvania's campus, and our main distribution center is actually in Bucks County um, in Fairless Hills, Pennsylvania, uh, which is right across from the Oxford Valley Mall, if any of you are from uh, our neck of the woods. With that being said, I'll give it the background of how we got started. A few years ago, I was running a healthcare marketing firm, and we were just developing strategies for our clients, which were mostly healthcare and, and you know, healthcare systems. Um, we were developing strategies around accessibility for them. And as we were digging deeper and deeper into it, I decided to create an advisory committee of people with different disabilities who could give me feedback about the customer experience, the consumer experience, um, and their disability. And so I reached out to a friend of mine who I knew very casually, um, Dr. Alex Cohen. And I knew Alex because our kids used to play Little League together. Um, so Alex and I were friendly from Little League. I didn't know too much about him other than the fact that we lived near each other. Um, his kids are good ball players, and he was a nice guy, and he was blind. So I was like, oh, Alex will be the guy on my advisory committee to give me insight into the blind community. So Alex and I, I reached out to him via email, and we met up for a cup of coffee. And I explained to him that, that, you know, what I was looking to do. And I learned more about Alex in that, in that, over that coffee, which was uh, Alex was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa in his late teens. Um, by the time he graduated college, he had lost almost all of his sight. And he decided to reinvent himself. He originally wanted to be in the hospitality industry, but he ultimately went back to school and earned a PhD from Drexel University in Philadelphia uh, with, in marketing with a specific focus on accessibility. And he wrote his doctoral dissertation on the accessibility of the top 100 retailers in America, specifically for the blind community. And so here I am thinking like, oh, I'll hang out with my friend Alex, and I can learn about the blind community from him. And little did I know that Alex is arguably the foremost expert, or one of the foremost experts, in retail accessibility for the blind community in the country. And so as we dug deeper into his research together, um, you know, we identified the, the, the pharmacy vertical in particular as being 
the most challenging and the least accessible and the most stressful. And so as we dug deeper and deeper and deeper into it, you know, long story short, we decided to build our own business because we saw that none of the companies that were out there who were all making efforts, every every pharmacy in the country, you know, isn't inaccessible because they don't want to be, because they want to be. They uh, they just don't have the resources for it. And they try doing certain things. They, they all make it efforts. But there was no one really, you know, running an A to Z solution about how to make medication management, diabetes management um, more manageable and, and produce better outcomes and, and really empower uh, blind adults to live more independently. And so we started a process of holding focus groups with individuals. We... Uh, uh, this was pre-pandemic, obviously. We went down to Washington, to Baltimore. We spent a day at the NFB headquarters. I got great feedback from people there. We got an enormous amount of support from uh, Kirk Adams at the AFB, um, people from the ACB, from the FFB, from a multitude of different groups and organizations. Everyone sort of rallied behind what we were doing. And um, obviously, Alex and I are business people, and he's an, he's an academic slash business person. I'm a business person. So at the end of the day, we had great ideas and an amazing business plan, but uh, we're not pharmacists. And so we, we spent the next few months really trying to find a third partner who could help us realize the opportunity. And we were very lucky. We met up with our third business partner, uh, Dr. Jason Barrett, who has a doctorate in pharmacy. Um, and coincidentally, Jason happens to be in the Philadelphia area as well. Um, but Jason has 30 years of experience in creating personalized medication management solutions. Um, Up until the point he got together with us, his core focus was really on um, assisted living facilities, uh, whether it be quote unquote old age homes or group homes for people with intellectual disabilities um, and just people with cognitive issues. And so everything that he had already focused on, his whole model was based upon identifying a person's needs and their challenges, and what needs to be done in order to support that person. Um, unlike the big chains, which uh, you know offer a one-size-fits-all solution, and they do it really well, which is why they're worth billions of dollars. Um, you know, he, he really, really embraced like we need to figure out how to do this. And I already, speaking as Jason, like he already knew what to do uh, to really create that personalized medication touch. And he was already working; he had already been working with Envision America to use some of their solutions. And he already had different kinds of packaging to help people that may have dexterity or mobility or organizational issues. And so uh, long story short, the three of us came together and we launched our business in April, 2020. Um, you know, obviously little did we know what was going to be happening with the pandemic, but you know, we, we kicked it off anyway. Um, we filed applications uh, to be able to deliver our services all throughout the country. Um, we're currently licensed in 31 states, which includes DC and Puerto Rico as well. And uh, like I said, we came out of the gate and um, we were very lucky. We were lucky in that um, our, our patients really sort of rallied around us and groups and organizations who we collaborated with rallied around us and gave us feedback. And we created a, a, a culture in our company where um, we, we encourage feedback and we embrace feedback. And when someone comes to us and says something that they like or don't like, um, we take out our notepads or if they give us suggestions. And that's basically what we did. Like We started on a regular basis interviewing patients of ours and creating 
advisory committees just to get feedback about things that we could be doing that would make us better at what we do and make the experience uh, even better. Um, and so fast forward to today, we now have 65 employees and we're growing and we're learning every day. And so and I'll share with you some new exciting things that we're developing right now that are ideas that came to us from our patients. And so to take a big step back, what do we do ultimately? We deliver to people's homes at no cost, prescription medication, over-the-counter medication, vitamins, supplements, eye drops, a whole range of diabetes supplies and, and devices and insulin, provide guide dog and pet medication. And we're able to take these things and deliver them to people's homes. Our business has three pillars. The first pillar is accessible support and education. What do I mean by that? We try to meet the patient where they want to be met. We don't force them to come to our store. Anyone's welcome to come visit us in Bucks County, but you never have to come to our place. You can go to our website, accessiblepharmacy.com. It's, it's very screen reader compatible, um, but you never have to go to our website. What we find is that the easiest way for us to interact with a patient is through the telephone. You know, we have to have a conversation with a patient. We have to learn, you know, what kind of medication they take. What's their level of eyesight? Do they understand technology? Are they comfortable with technology? Do they read Braille? Do they still have remnants of vision that will enable them to read like larger fonts and stuff? Who else is in the household with them? Are there caregivers? Are there children or parents or siblings or spouses? Um, We'd like to get information about the entire medical team, you know, the endocrinologist, the general practitioner, um, the ophthalmologist, so that we can interact with them if need be. And obviously the insurance information. So we capture all that information. And in about a day or two, we go to work. We reach out to the doctors. We have our pharmacy team review all the medication and supplements and healthcare profile. We contact the insurance company just to make sure that uh, we are able to continue to work with these patients. And more often than not, we are able to work with patients. Insurance, for the most part, is not an issue for us. We get all that information back and we contact the patient. And based upon the patient saying that they want to work with us, we get started. So the phone is arguably our primary way of communication and supporting patients. But in addition to that, we're also the pharmacy partner of Be My Eyes. And we're able to uh, onboard, bring patients on board using Be My Eyes. We also use Be My Eyes to um, help patients and educate patients. What do I mean by that? Patients can call us anytime during the day using Be My Eyes to identify a pill or help with a label or understand a drug interaction or most of the inter- uh, interactions we have with Be My Eyes are uh, people contacting us because they want to take a temporary remedy, um, like acetaminophen, a painkiller, or a stomach remedy. And they just want to make sure that those remedies don't have a negative interaction with their medication. We also use the Be My Eyes app to train people. So if we send someone a talking glucose meter, or if someone's using a script talk and, and the device isn't working properly, they can engage us through Be My Eyes and we walk them through how to actually uh, address the issue or learn about the product. Um, In addition, and finally, we work with a great deal of deaf-blind patients who interact with us regularly via email and text as well. So that's the first pillar, accessible support. Our second pillar is accessible packaging. We're able to take people's medications and vitamins and supplements and pack them in a whole range of different kinds of accessible packaging. These include things like uh, pre-sorted, disposable pill organizers. 
that are different sizes and shapes depending on the amount of medication that people are taking, the number of times a day people are taking their medication. And in these pre-sorted disposable pill organizers, we can put over-the-counter meds, prescription meds, vitamins, and supplements so that it's much easier for someone to manage um, and someone doesn't have to get all the bottles and then sort them themselves and run the risk of an error and also you know, have the issue of just the time related to it, the stress related to it. So we eliminate that. We also have, we have the exact same machine that Amazon has for its pill pack. Um, there are essentially three inch by three inch approximately um, little plastic baggies. They come sealed and it's on a perforated strip of baggies and we stick it in a, dis- uh, a disposable dispenser and you simply tear off the little baggie and it's chronological. So if you take medicine in the morning and at night, you'll have the morning meds and then the next perfor- right into the perforation, there'll be the next meds. Um, so that's another uh, accessible package we have. We have different size and shape bottles for people with mobility issues. So we have we can send someone their medication in oversized bottles with pop-off lids in the event that they have, let's say, Parkinson's or arthritis or something of that nature. Um, finally, we're launching in the beginning of October, something we're very, very excited about. And this was actually something that came to us from a patient, actually came from a multitude of patients. Um, I'll tell that story in a little bit as well, but... Um, we're going to be delivering uh, single liquid doses of children's medication for blind parents so that they can safely administer medication to their children. Um, what we're going to launch is version 1.0. We have a collection of over, over-the-counter medications, and our hope is that we're going to slowly expand that into other types of remedies and medications as well. The third and final pillar is accessible labeling on all of our packaging, whether it's the organizers, the uh, daily pill packets, um, the packaging with the for, for children's liquid meds or, or bottles, we can put different kinds of labels. And we encourage our patients, you can actually mix labels and have multiple labels on a package. So for example, um, we have a grade one Braille embosser, and we also have a, a contracted Braille, Braille uh, printer. So we can adhere labels to any of our packaging in different kinds of Braille, depending on someone's proficiency and comfort with Braille. Uh, We can print labels out in large fonts in both Spanish and in English, by the way. Um, Obviously, we're we're constrained to like the size of the package, but we'll print it as large as we can to be able to fit on that package with the necessary information for a patient. Um, Now, speaking about Envision America, and I encourage you all to stay around and listen to what Charlotte has to say after I speak. We are massive fans of Envision America. Um, they were pioneers in medication management and label uh, technology and label solutions for people in the blind and low vision community. Um, we work with a collection of their products and services, but the one that, we're, that we, we rely on mostly is their, their Script Talk solution, which is a great, simple uh, solution. It's essentially, it's a, it's a sticker with a, uh, I'll, I'll oversimplify, it's a sticker with an, a microchip embedded in it, essentially an RFID tag. And that can be added to any of our packaging uh, and any of our products. And essentially what it does is, uh, whether you're using an app or a device that ScriptTalk can send you, Envision America can send you, um, you simply take your package, you stick it next to your phone, or you stick it next to their device. The device is about the size of a clock radio, and it reads the prescription information out loud to the individual. And it's awesome. And we can actually combine a combination of script talk and Braille and text, um, you know, based upon, you know, what, what 
the patient's preferences. Um, none of our support, our packaging and our labeling, uh, there's no fee for them. We make our money by being reimbursed by insurance companies. So we encourage our patients to try different things and different combinations of, 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 of things until they reach a point where they, they feel more comfortable um, with what they have in the package. And, and, and they can ultimately manage their medication better. There's some other things that we're working on and what we do. Um, interestingly, one of the ways that we actually got to uh, providing guide dog and pet medication and, and, and the, the new liquid doses for blind parents, as I mentioned, is, is from research, feedback from our patients. So uh, this last summer, we had our first college internship program. Uh, we ran it with Visions out of New York City. And we, we had a blind college student uh, who's a junior this year at SUNY Binghamton. And one of his projects uh, working with us this summer, and by the way, it, it exceeded our expectations. And next summer, we're, we're planning on having five students working with us. But one of uh, his projects was to do market research and to survey patients of ours. So we gave him uh, a sampling of our patients and he interviewed them. And routinely, um, we identified being able to support blind parents as something that was uh, something to develop. So uh, we have our internship program. We are planning on developing a, a really close relationship with the Helen Keller uh, National Center to really support our deafblind patients um, in a deeper way. They're going to be doing sensitivity training with our entire staff and also just training about how we can support and manage um, our, our patients who are both who have dual sensory loss. And we're hoping to include a dual sensory loss intern next summer as well. Um, other things that, oh, one other a cool, really quick side story. We just found out on, on Tuesday, we have a deafblind patient who competed in the senior Paralympic Games, um, and she won a gold medal in three different events. And it was really nice. She sent us an email um, and actually said that, you know, one of the reasons why she was able to compete at this high level this last year was because she was able to get her diabetes in check. And uh, she thanked us for the work that we were able to do with her. So it was really exciting for us and our whole team to, uh, we didn't even know that she was an athlete, but just to know that we had a deafblind patient and her major issue was, you know, you know monitoring her, her glucose levels and managing her diabetes. And she's actually in a really cool space right now. And uh, we're actually going to be interviewing her and posting it to our blog in the next few weeks. So if anyone wants to hear a cool story and read a cool story, um, we'll have that there as well. Other interesting initiatives we're working on um, include we are on December 3rd and we're going to, we're going to circulate emails in the next two weeks about this. We're going to be running uh, a, a virtual conference on blindness and diabetes. Uh, we have a, a, an incredible, incredible group of experts, people who are incredibly knowledgeable about both blindness and diabetes, speaking about a whole range of topics ranging from medication for, for diabetics uh, accessible devices for people who are diabetics, whether it's um, talking glucometers or some of the continuous glucose monitoring systems. We have people speaking about nutrition, about you know tips for daily life, about exercise, um, about insurance and how insurance uh, plays into this, about diabetic retinopathy, and uh, we're incredibly, incredibly excited about that. And our hope is that you know based upon the support that we get from this and the interest that it creates. You know, we're looking to build it into a, hopefully 2022, an in-person conference that'll also, um, you know, include, a, you know, maybe a, a day or two 
uh, of events and activities and, and webinars and seminars. Um, we're going to be running a breast cancer program uh, about focusing on blindness and breast cancer, specifically targeting blind women and their families and their friends. Um, what else are we working on? Uh, you know, those are some of the things that we're doing. It's, and it's interesting. We encourage our patients, you know, like try us out. You know, uh, we, uh, like, as I mentioned, we have try us out for a few months. Uh, I can't guarantee that you'll have the best experience ever, but I can guarantee that like, the things that we're doing, no one else is doing. And I can guarantee that when you call us, like we're ready for that call. Um, we want that call and we'll take that call and walk through the process with you and figure out collectively how we can make medication management, you know, easier and, 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 and live healthier lives. So those are some of the things that we do. Um, as I mentioned, we have 65 employees, 25% of which are blind or low vision themselves. Um, we are hiring now in additional states. We're now looking to hire in Florida, Illinois, and Ohio as well. Um, these are blind individuals, and, and we're excited. And that, you know, just to summarize this once again, we're, we're grateful for everyone who included us here. Um, we're grateful for all of you who do work in the community. Um, I'm grateful for some of you who are patients of ours already, so thank you. And uh, I'd love to open the floor for conversation or questions um, in the event that we run out of time or we hang up and you're like, Oh, I forgot to ask Andy a question. Once again, my personal email address is Andy at accessible pharmacy.com. Uh, if you want to call our pharmacy and you, you want to become a patient, you can call us at 215-799-9900. That's 215-799-9900. Our website's accessiblepharmacy.com. Uh, if you have a, if you have an iPhone, you can ask Siri, like Siri, call accessible pharmacy. And depending on how your settings are set up, Siri may say, do you mean accessible pharmacy in Fairless Hills, Pennsylvania? That's my Siri imitation. Um, that's us. And so, and you, and through be my eyes, you can find us in the, um, uh, specialized help section. So thank you everyone again. And if anyone has any questions, I'd, I'd, I'd love to, uh, have a conversation. Hello, Andy. My name is October Lowe. When you mentioned about supplements, does that include things like catnip, echinacea, cinnamon, you know, those things I found homeopathic remedies sometimes work better than allopathic ones? Absolutely, October. Um, so, yeah, yes, there are some, uh, I'll call them you know, alternative remedies. Um, I, I can't say we get everything, but, you know, we've been, we've been pitched some curveballs before of people asking us for some uh, alternative remedies that are not so readily available uh, online or at stores. And uh, um, we'll, we'll, we'll hunt them down for you. Thank you, sir. Oh, you're welcome. And in addition, if we do, if, if it's like in a pill form, for example, we can actually um, include it in the pre-sorted disposable pill organizers. So it's all bundled together well, with I, your prescription. I, read, I have all my stuff labeled in Braille. So I, oh, nice. I use Very a cool. different pharmacy and I put Braille labels on everything I have. Okay. Well, if you want, how about this? If you, if you love your pharmacist, stay with your pharmacist. You know, we exist because people don't love their pharmacist. But if you love your pharmacist, full steam ahead. But if you want, we can pre-label it for you. So you don't have to even go through that burden of labeling it yourself. Hmm. Well, thank you, sir. Oh, you're welcome. It triggered some memory, some thoughts in my brain, which is we also have a collection of uh, accessible, um, small accessible medical devices, things like talking thermometers, talking glucometers, talking blood pressure meters, you know, stuff like that as well. Um, when it comes to the guide dog and pet medication, and we still encourage people to, you know, I would, uh, use your, your veterinarian when it comes to things like 
flea and tick collars or heartworm remedies or temporary remedies. Um, if you have a guide dog or a pet with chronic issues, that's where we can, we can really support you and help you because we're able to package guide dog and pet medication in the same accessible packaging with the same labeling as well. Andy, this is Joyce Marie Smith. Hey, Joyce, um, how are you? I'm good, thanks. I would thank you for this type of pharmacy to even make it available. But um, I was not able to get your phone number. If you could repeat it once more, because I definitely want to contact you. Oh, right on. Thank you, Joyce. Sure. So our phone number is 215-799-9900. Okay, that's what I was making the last four. And I definitely want the information when you do your diabetes and blindness because that's that's where I need help. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. So, yes, we're going to put something up on our website and we're going to uh, um, push out like an email uh, uh, the next week, an email invitation. If you want to shoot me an email with your email information, I'll add you to our mailing list. And I'll make sure you get the information. That would be great, except I don't do any of that. Uh, I I don't. Yeah, I have to do all my. Yep. (laughs) So I have a question for you. I don't have your full. Do you, are you able to text message? No, I can't do that either. Why don't you get in touch? If you can get in touch with the, you know, you you know, one of the people here on the, uh, the organizers, I'd love to reach out to you or call the, call the pharmacy. Um, And that's what I'm going to do. All right, and, and ask them, them. And, and feel free to ask them, say, hey, can I also get in touch with Andy? And you can call me too, and I'll make sure I get you all the information. That's what I would like to do. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Okay, thanks again. So, so Andy, I have a question that I haven't actually heard or heard answered, and that is, does, um, will prescriptions be provided or delivered prior to the end of the month, the previous month's prescriptions running out? Lynn, thanks, thanks for asking that question because that's an important question. <laughs> and and it just, it, it skipped my memory. But that being said, so to answer Lynn's question, so for those of you who didn't catch that, you know, uh, we provide active refill management. What do I mean by that? On a, on a regular basis, let's assume your medication is delivered to you monthly. We will deliver you your next month's medication before the current month expires. So just theoretically, and if there's 30 days in a month, we will send you the next month's medication, figure like on the 25th day. So you'll never have any type of issue of running out of medication um, in the meantime. In addition, uh, we'll be in touch with your doctors. So in the event that a prescription needs to be renewed, we'll make sure that we facilitate a conversation between you and your physician. Um, You may need to have an appointment, but we'll make sure that there's no delay in getting you your medication. In addition, that another thought, Lynn, you reminded me of, um, <laughs> at least once a week, we get a call from a patient who is like, I am in Miami, I'm at a hotel, I'm here on vacation with my family, and I forgot my meds. Um, we will overnight medication to the patient, to the hotel, in the packaging and labeling that you need, um, just to cover you for that uh, uh, that, that vacation. So these are certain things that we're able to do when it comes to managing the medication for the patient and making sure you get the refills on time. There are uh, a lot of ways that we can do it. And, uh, there's never an issue about not having your medication. So Lynn, thanks so much for bringing that up. 
Thank you, Andy. You're welcome. All right. Well, thank you again. I encourage you to all stay around for Charlotte's presentation. You can learn more about some of the really incredible things that Envision America is doing. Um, you know, we, we rely on them a lot to support our patients, and we're really grateful for the work that they do. Andy, before you leave, would you mind giving us again your contact information? Sure. So to call the pharmacy, the pharmacy's phone number is 215-799-9900. That's 215-799-9900. And uh, our website is accessiblepharmacy.com. If you have a general question, you can email us at info at Accessible Pharmacy. If you have a question for me specifically, you can reach out to me at andy at AccessiblePharmacy.com. Um, and if anyone here is representing a group or an organization and you'd love to have a conversation with me, with Emily, or with Lynn, you can just shoot us an email at uh, you know, info at AccessiblePharmacy.com and one of us will reach out to you. Andy, on behalf of the Pennsylvania Council of the Blind, I'd like to thank you for your presentation. This half hour just flew by. Um, your information was very informative, and your enthusiasm came through throughout the entire half hour. So on behalf of the organization, thank you for uh, committing to be an exhibitor with our group this year and for your support. Right, well, thank you, Tom, and thank you, everyone else. Enjoy the rest of the day and enjoy the rest of the presentations. Now I'd like to introduce Charlotte Glass with Envision America to tell us about all kinds of things that the company is working with. And Charlotte, you're the last person you have until uh, four o'clock to speak. And so we welcome your input. Thank you. Well, I am really, I'm glad to be here. Um, Like Tom said, uh, Charlotte Glass with Envision America. I've worked for Envision America for 16 years in various capacities. Um, and now my main, my main job, um, I still manage the IDMate database, but uh, my other main job is public policy and community outreach. Um, so I, I don't know, this is maybe my second or third year working on that. So I'm still kind of new to it and learning a lot and kind of excited to share uh, my experiences and learn from everybody in, uh, you know, the organizations that I'm working with because you guys often have been doing this for many years. And so uh, I really like the theme this year, strengthening community through unity, because that's really a a lot about what um, public policy is all about. Um, We work together to create the policies that will help society become, you know, stronger, more unified, and also, you know, have accessibility. Uh, so I, my, the theme of my talk, it wasn't really so much to talk about script talk as to talk about um, accessible prescription labeling in general. And if every pharmacy was like Andy's pharmacy, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. Um, our, our goal is to have every pharmacy be like Andy's pharmacy. <laughs> Uh, because, you know, we've had the ADA for 30 years. Um, we've had the Affordable Care Act for several years. We've had the, the U.S. Access Board best practices for accommodating blind, low vision, and elderly patients um, on the books since 2013. And yet we see over and over again that there are a lot of pharmacies that are not implementing accessibility practices uh, for labeling prescriptions. Um, so what a growing number of states are doing 
And we've got, you know, Nevada and Oregon already passed legislation to put into state statute how pharmacies will observe and implement, you know, these federal accessibility laws. Um, and then to have Board of Pharmacy or some agency, you know, have oversight over the implementation of that and has some consequences other than, you know, a lawsuit for when they're not implementing these. Um, another thing that happens through that whole legislative process is allowing pharmacies to become a part of that conversation if they've never been a part of that conversation before. Um, and it's a real education as well. You know, as the Board of Pharmacy we've seen in in uh, Oregon, you know, is creating the rules that go along with the law that was passed, like the nitty gritty rules about this is exactly what we expect you to do. Um, there's been a lot of conversation about how, how and why we're doing what we're doing when we have accessible prescription labels. Now, in Oregon, their law is just for talking prescription labels, but many other states who have proposed laws have different different um, wording, I guess you could say. And so, for example, in Pennsylvania, the current bill that's out there, um, HB 89, actually um, would require, if it passes, um, audible prescription uh, braille or um, printed high, high contrast uh, large font. And the wording is kind of like pharmacies would choose which one they're going to provide. Um, so I'll just read that wording specifically so that those of you who are unfamiliar with this bill, it says, um, upon request by a customer, a pharmacy shall make available accessible prescription labels to the customer for an individual who has a visual impairment at no additional cost including a label which provides for any of the following. One, audible prescription information. Two, prescription information in Braille. And three, prescription information printed on a high contrast large label. And the board of pharmacy shall promulgate the regulations necessary to implement this. Um, so I know that George Holiday and the entire group there um, with you guys have been working very hard um, with Representative Dan Miller, and um, I know that he says that he's going to keep presenting this bill um, until it gets some consideration, but I think that there's a lot of things that we can do in the meantime to try and build the conversation, um, and so that's kind of um, what I have been trying to do in the background, um, you know, we have customers um, that are passionate about it. Um, and I know organizations like ACB and um, many of the other disability rights organizations in Pennsylvania, um, we're, we're just trying to get the word out to them that this bill is even out there because it's not got a lot of, you know, um, advertising going around it and i know even rep miller is he knows that there's not a lot of political backing for it um and that was you know he said that way before we even had all the covid stuff going on um so there's a lot more 
on the plate of the Pennsylvania Health House, House Health Committee. Um, you know, they're debating masking and you know how to take care of people with COVID. So, a lot more pressing issues um, that deal with a lot more uh, dangerous things. But um, this is, I think, overall really important though because this is not going to go away. People are still going to need accessibility way after we figure out what to do with COVID. And we'd like to, you know, make sure that everyone has their say. And, you know, if the language of the bill is not uh, what it needs to be to have that tweaked um, and making sure that everyone um, involved in that conversation, um, you know, has their say there. I know in Washington, I was talking to the Washington Council of Blind and they were like, well, we like organs, but we kind of have a problem like with some of the pharmacies that make us wait two or three days to get a talking prescription label. And they'd like to be able to just walk in and say, I need a prescription label and wait the same amount of time as other people. So, um, you know, when they're drafting bill language and looking for a sponsor, that's something that they seemed really adamant about. Um, and, and that's a good conversation to have is, you know, you could always over ask and have, have the committee pare it down. But if you don't ask for everything that you want from the beginning, it's a lot harder to add stuff on later. So that's kind of um, the, the gist of where I'm starting out at right now. And there's a lot of things that we can do to advocate on that level. And it's not, you know, we don't always necessarily have to even go that far when we're talking about advocacy. So, you know, if you're uncomfortable uh, with the legislative route, there's always a more local um, things that you can do. Um, So we are, we've been sponsoring for the last, I think, three or four years, um, medication safety awareness for the blind month. And so we provide anyone who wants to be a part of that um, advocacy month, um, the tools they need, like brochures or samples or um, script talk devices. You know, if you're not a current script talk user, but you'd like to have a device to do demonstrations, um, we send those out on loan. And um, we have like a nice little video. And if you're on our email mailing list, you probably got that around lunchtime today. Um, a link to that video that's all about medication safety awareness for the blind month and how you can get involved. Um, we have lots of ideas on sharing it with at your at your at meetings you go to, support groups, um, contacting you know your local pharmacies, lo- local health agencies. Um, senior centers. Uh, I mean, like the ideas are endless because so many people are involved in medication management, um, you know, friends and family and, you know, just getting the word out because a lot of times people are struggling with even just simple vision loss and they could benefit from, you know, a large print label or an audible label, but they might not like really put themselves in that vision loss category ordinarily, but they could still benefit from it. Um, those are the people that, you know, we really want to reach out to. And we find that a lot of times like a script talk might be the first accessible piece of equipment that they've ever used. And uh, we can 
help them from that point. And then our customer service reps might help them find, you know, connections to an ACB group or their local lighthouse or something like that. You know, that getting a script talk might be a gateway into getting a lot more help down the road. Um, and I know, Andy, you're doing the same thing there, you know, like not just putting an accessible label on there, but making sure that they got talking glucometers and all that stuff. Um, so that, you know, managing everything and, um, a lot of times people don't even know that those things are available. And so it's really eye opening to like provide them with that, um, that service. And so, uh, anybody who wants to be a part of that, um, medication safety awareness for the blind month, uh, we are happy to work with you on that. And, uh, I know Jenna's creating some social media and um, things like that, that we'll be putting out throughout October. And um, I know we've, we've scheduled to be a part of not just your convention, but a lot of the other conventions that are going on um, to help spread the word there. Uh, So just, you know, working on, you know, strengthening our community through all of us working together. Um, it's such a great theme. So that's kind of what I wanted to talk about. And I think that there's probably questions out there or, you know, maybe if George has some more information to share about what's going on that I don't know about on the bill, um, I would welcome that commentary too. So if anybody has questions or comments. Hey, Charlotte, this is Sue Lickenfels. Do you have... I guess, what advice would you give us? Like, what has, what have the Oregon people and the Nevada people done, do you think, that has really prevailed over their legislators to get it passed? You know, I think that in both places, the legislators were very excited about it and did a lot of footwork. Um, I, I really think that made all the difference. And they're because I mean they went through and they got the um, a similar like in Oregon they have a similar bill but it was for dual language prescription labels and I think that was a benefit for them because they had that bill going on at the same time and the nurses that were promote presenting for that bill were like student nurses they were very passionate about it and they had all this evidence that. You know, if you don't know how to read your prescription labels, if they're in another language and you can't, you know, you can't medicate properly, people like just don't take their meds because they are afraid to take them the wrong way. And they had all these statistics because they were keeping track of the statistics because they were working with refugees and the government wants all kinds of information about that. And that really helps like translate over. Okay, well, you know, Blind people can't read their medications either. And we don't have the same statistics, but the result is the same. It's just nobody's keeping track of the statistics. And um, I think that that was really those two bills being presented by the same legislators at the same time kind of was a big help. (laughs) But I think in Nevada, um, Mo Dennis was really passionate too, and he was able to garner a lot of other support um, from other legislators. So, you know, if 
if Rep. Dan Miller isn't, you know, at the point of feeling like he can gain other supporters, that might be where we need to be doing more to get other co-sponsors. And then especially other co-sponsors on, you know, both sides of the aisle to make it obvious to everyone else that this is not a partisan issue, that this is, you know, everybody is going to benefit from it. It also helps to have some pharmacy people, you know, pharmacists or, you know, on board to say like, yeah, we're okay with this. We just want to be a part of the conversation. Um, so like in Puerto Rico, they, they, their bill has passed the, passed the Senate and it passed unanimously. There was two people absent, but everybody else voted for it. And now it's in the house. And I mean, their strongest thing was that at their health committee meeting, we had two or three um, envision or like script talk providing pharmacies come and say like, I I wasn't sure how to help my patients who were blind, and this has been amazing. And then even having like CVS was there, and they said, well, you know, we're all for it too. Just don't have you know they had in the bill like they actually use the word script talk, and they're like scratch that out, you know, because Spoken Rx is amazing too. And of course, everyone's like, yeah, we don't care who you use. You just got to do something. Um, and so I have, you know, we're just waiting for the House um, Health Committee to have their committee hearing and, you know, for it to be voted on. But you no, know, we're very hopeful. Um, and I mean, if Puerto Rico can pass it, <laughs> um, then I think I think there's really no excuse by other states, you know, they can't use that it's too expensive or whatever as an excuse because Puerto Rico passed it. (laughs) Well, we'll see if they do. We'll see if they do, but um, we'll see in the next coming months. Um, So those are my suggestions. I'm sure that um, even if this ends up being an evergreen bill, you know, like it just gets resubmitted over and over again, what we can do is use it as a conversation starter. So every time we talk to our legislators, okay, well, what about this bill? Because this bill has been here two years, three years, four years. When are we going to, you know, the ADA has been around for 30 years. When are we going to start to implement in state statute of federal law that's been on the books for 30 years? This is Tom Bergender. I'd like to follow up with Sue's question. Um, I'm from Pittsburgh. We've actually met with Dan Miller. He's a representative from out in the Pittsburgh area, actually the South Hills. And he's expressed his pessimism about passage of this bill in Pennsylvania, partially at least because there's great resistance from small chain pharmacies or independent pharmacists that this bill will cause them to incur a lot of additional costs. That issue certainly arises all over the country. How have you addressed it? Well, I mean, we just address it by saying, you know, nobody bats an eye as subscribing to Amazon Prime for a year. That's about Mm -hmm. the same cost as subscribe, you know, loaning out software from us. (laughs) I mean, it's like, it's laughable that they complain about the cost of it. It doesn't really cost that much. Um, When you look at the profits that these pharmacies have, I mean, it's just, they're going to use that excuse no matter what. (laughs) 
I mean, they're, they're going to, we have to expect that they're going to be backlash. I mean, they're a business. Their whole thing is to make a profit, but at what cost? I mean, there is going to be a cost for someone somewhere. Is it going to be somebody's life? Is it, you know, like one example, we had a customer that's like, I, my pharmacy is saying that they don't want to pay for this because it costed like the package that they wanted was like going to be like $600 a year or something. And he's like, but if my mom can't manage her meds on her own, then she can't live in the independent living apartments. She has to go into the assisted living apartments and the cost difference is $600 a month. Now, you know, when the pharmacy heard that, you know, he's like, geez, you know, do I have to like pay the whole $600 to you just so I don't have to pay 600 times 12 every year, you know, for, you know, or if somebody ends up in the ER because they took the wrong medication at the wrong time, somebody's going to pay for that. And I mean, a lot of times, you know, it's going to be the federal government or it's going to be people out of pocket or it's going to be an insurance company or it's going to be the pharmacy if they get sued. (laughs) So I, we can have that conversation, certainly. And I mean, again, any good business is going to try and not incur more costs of running their business. But like, it's, it's a federal law. It doesn't matter how much it costs, really. And the, <laughs> they, they paid for uh, a handicap ramp. Did they bulk at paying for the handicap ramp or rails in their bathroom or you know, all the other things, it's, it's just, it's just a, a, a part of the cost of doing business because you accommodate your patients. There is that concern, but there's, again, somebody's going to end up having to pay one way or the other. And it's better that we're being paid for safety than paying for someone being injured. That's my take on it. As I say, there has been obviously tremendous resistance by these pharmacies, and they speak to their legislators, and their legislators are obviously reacting to what they hear from these people as individual and as organizations. So that's why it's an uphill battle. Yeah. Well, I think the voice of those who need the bill passed need to be louder than the pharmacy then. I mean, Hi, Charlotte. This is Chris Hunsinger, and I just wanted to say that it's also a political spitting match because it's the Republicans versus the Democrats in, in that legislature. And the Republicans will tell you that, that that's what the pharmacies are saying, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't help the Democratic bill to save their souls almost. So well, that's I'm trying not to be political. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I mean, that's the truth in a lot of places, but hopefully we can find a way. And again, even if it doesn't pass, making sure that we're using it as a a conversation starter, no matter whether you're working with a Democrat or a Republican, it's the bill is out there. And so we can talk about it and we can talk about what people really need. Maybe it won't pass, maybe this time, the next time, whatever, but um, it's one more thing that we can use to raise awareness of that there's there's a problem that's not being addressed. And the more states that do get it passed, the more pressure there will be, the more normalized it'll be. So there's that too. And I, I just in case you're wondering, um, I know you guys aren't the only ones. Like we have 
I've been talking to organizations or know that there's a representative that's going to be putting forward a bill in Ohio, Minnesota, Missouri, New York, Washington, and Florida. So just keeping an eye on all of them, as well as Pennsylvania and Puerto Rico. So just nationwide, lots of conversations going on. Well, Charlotte, I think we ought to bring this to a close because yeah. I don't get the sense that we have a, a clamor of hands raised to talk with you right now. Sure. We, we do have to move into a board meeting. And so our, our, many of the people on this call have something else to look forward to in five minutes. But I wanted to, I wanted to okay, thank you for, for being a speaker. And I hope you understand that you've got the support of the Pennsylvania Council of the Blind to help Dan Miller in doing what he can to get this bill passed in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to help you guys out and help Dan out if he needs it and just share the passion throughout the whole country about <laughs> advocating for accessibility. So, yeah. Thank you together. very much. You're welcome. You guys have a great day.